everybody, and welcome to From the Mezzanine, a Broadway podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Stone, and let's get into this week's episode. How's everybody doing? Before we get started, I would just like to give you a little bit of a, a light nudge to check out the show notes down below and go find me on TikTok, Instagram, and my Facebook page. I've been working hard on my social channels, and I had a video that came out last night that uh, is a little bit of a spoof about today's episode, and I think you might enjoy it. So please go down below and click on any of my social channels, whichever one you prefer. I am really having a good time on TikTok currently, but Instagram is always, you know, my strong favorite. But I have been working on some content for y'all there, and I think if you enjoy listening to this podcast, you will enjoy my social media as well. So head on down there, let me know what you think, and uh, interact with the latest video that I put up. Here, um, this episode, obviously, according to the title, we are talking about Legally Blonde. And so I've done a little bit of a Legally Blonde video down there. I don't want to give too much away. I'll give a little bit more away later on in the episode. Um, but go down there and let's comment a pink emoji in honor of Legally Blonde or there's not a chihuahua emoji, is there? No, I think we should all do like a pink heel or the dress or a lipstick or maybe a briefcase. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going too far. We need to all comment the same thing. Let's do a pink emoji. Pink heart for Legally Blonde on my latest video that I have posted on all of my social channels. And tag, this is a hint, the Tony Awards. Tag the Tony Awards if you go down and look at that video. And uh I will give you a big, big, big virtual hug. But with that, it has been a big week in Broadway news. I mean, we have a lot of shows that have had their opening night this week. And what a better way to start off than to check out our Broadway grosses. So this is for the week ending in uh, March 19th. So a lot of these numbers do not yet reflect the shows that have just recently opened. But you can tell that there's some changes. So number one, Phantom of the Opera. Obviously, no change there. They grossed $3 million this week. That is really hard to believe. That is so high. I mean, they are inching closer and closer to their closing date of April 16th. They're coming up on it. So I expect that this grosses is only going to go up and up and up. In their last week on Broadway, let's do a little bit of a guesstimation. I'm going to guess that they're going to make $3.5 million that week. So right now, they're at $3 million, which is high. That is crazy high. They're going to have that average ticket price go way up because they're already at 101 capacity. They are a full house. So closing week, that's my guesstimation, $3.5 million. Check back on FTM in about two weeks, and we'll talk about it. The Lion King is number two. Eh, no surprise. Hamilton is three, Wicked four, MJ five, holding it down. Sweeney Todd is situated oh so nicely at number six. They're at $1.6 million. Holy cannoli, that is so, so freaking much. Good for y'all over there at Sweeney Todd. I think y'all are going to be around for quite a while. Harry Potter is seven, Moulin Rouge, eight, 
We got bumped down when Sweeney came in. Ah, uh, what are you gonna do? Can't be too mad about it. Oh my gosh, this is so cool. Jonas Brothers on Broadway is nine. I didn't think that, I did not expect to see their name on the Broadway grosses list. I just didn't think that they were kind of competing against the Broadway shows, but it makes sense. They were at the marquee for one week only. What I would have given to be at those shows. I would have loved to be at the Jonas Brothers night because that album has all of the best songs. But they are right under Moulin Rouge with 1.5 million. Way to go, Joe Bros. Aladdin is 9 and Anne Juliet is 10. Bunny Girl was bumped to 11 because Leah Michelle was out quite a lot this week. Apparently her son is unwell. He's sick. I'm not sure everything that's going on with that, but it's pulling her from the show uh, quite often. Um, she was out again this week. Uh, I think just for one day. So I hope all is well over there with Leah Michelle and her son, wishing them health and the best. But I want to talk about Jonas Brothers for just one more second. I heard that uh, after their opening night, they invited Moulin Rouge. They didn't invite Funny Girl. I think Anne Juliet. They invited the cast of Hamilton. They invited like three casts to their uh, like opening night after party. And it looked so cool. Joe Jonas was like DJing it. And I mean, how how awesome would it have been to be in one of those casts and get to go to a Jonas Brothers after party? How fun. And I think it's just really cool that the Jonas Brothers did this on Broadway. I hope that a few other big pop stars follow suit because I think it did really good things for them. And it was a really unique way to market their new CD, their new CD. Who says that anymore? Their new album. <laughs> I haven't listened to it yet. I'm not sure if it's come out. Let me Google real quick. Nah, but anyways, okay. Exciting. I love to see the Jonas Brothers on Broadway grosses. Any excuse to talk about the Joe Bros I'm happy about. But let's head right on into our Broadway news of this week. First things first, Parade has dropped their cast album. Okay, y'all know that cast albums are the way to my heart. You know, some people say, Oh, a nice home-cooked meal is the way to my heart. No, the way to my heart is a cast album. And Parade did it better than anybody ever has. Okay, I'll tell you all their sequence of events that they took. Their opening night was this past week. They announced on March 20th that the album would be out on March 23rd. They didn't make us wait for forever. They didn't announce, hey, cast album coming, and then sit quietly for Lord knows how many months like I've heard others do. Cough, cough, paradise square, cough, cough. Anyways, they announced it, and then three days later, cast album arrived. Alex has been listening to it religiously. After we saw this show, she was already so obsessed. And uh, I hadn't listened to, like, the old album, which is what she was consuming daily. And so I just listened to the new cast album this morning. It's wonderful, guys. Go and listen. It really tells the entire story start to finish of Parade. Some cast albums, like Six, for example, there's not that many songs. There's quite a bit more dialogue in the musical. Um, but then you take Hamilton, for example, and it's pretty much you listen to the cast album, you know exactly what's happening in the show. And Parade's similar to that. It's it's really a heavy music musical. So listen to the cast album and you will have a great idea of what's going on in Parade. Of course, it doesn't give you the same um, experience as if you're sitting in the audience and watching it. But I think that's one of the most fun things about musical theater. Before you've seen a show... If you just listen to a cast album, it paints a picture in your head, and it's like reading a book. You think about what the characters look like, what choreography is happening, the set design, and then you go and you see it, and you're like, oh, wow, yeah, this is either just like I pictured or very different. I had that experience 
with the musical I grew up on, Wicked, and nothing really compares to just listening to something religiously and then going and seeing it. And like, it's just, it's just so cool. It's so cool. So even if you haven't seen Parade, guys, go listen to the cast album. I think you will enjoy it. Um, but let's talk about their opening night and, of course, the critics' reviews. Don't worry, they're not bad. Okay, so in attendance on opening night, we have Sarah Bareilles. We have the Jagged Little Pill crew. Derek Kleena was in attendance. Um, Catherine Gallagher was there. Anna Wintour was there. She loves herself a Broadway opening night. I feel like she goes to pretty much all of them. Um, Jeremy Jordan was there, which... Can we get him in a Broadway show already? What is the holdup? Come on. I mean, I know he's living his rock star dreams. I know. But he could do a Jonas Brothers type beat. Like, come on Broadway and rock out. I don't know how that would do exactly. But I would go. I love me some Jeremy Jordan. Dylan Mulvaney was there. We love her. And Rachel Zegler was also in attendance. So it was really a star-studded opening night. I mean, I feel like the stars do come out. And there's always like a different kind of demographic of Hollywood that you see come out for opening night. And I would say the parade one was very like Broadway celebrities. We had Rachel Zegler, Jeremy Jordan, Derek Kleena, you know, the people that people know a little bit, but that Broadway like adores. And so, hey, that's my favorite kind of opening night. I love to see all of those people back on Broadway. And may I repeat, can we please get Jeremy Jordan in a show? What's upcoming that he could be in? Hmm. Back to the Future. No, they already announced their cast. Which, if you're if you're into that, uh, if you're a Back to the Future fan, yes, they did announce their cast this week. So uh, go check that out. I'm not recapping it because, hey, sorry, I don't know a lot about Back to the Future. But let's hear about what the critics had to say about Parade. I was surprised to find out that in this New York Times review, which are my favorite reviews, this is written by Jesse Green. He titles it A Pageant of Love and Anti-Semitism in Parade. And I was surprised to see that it 100, okay, 99.999% focuses on Michaela Diamond, who for me, if you listen to the past two episodes about our parade recap, she was totally the front runner of the show. I felt like she held the relationship together between her and Ben Platt's characters, Lucille and Leo Frank. She is 23 years old. She is younger than me. And her talent is far beyond her years in terms of acting, singing. Oh my gosh, she was incredible. And the critic with the New York Times agreed that she, without a doubt, was the star of the show. So I'll read a little bit of an excerpt. Jesse Green says, quote, You do not expect the star of the musical about a man lynched by an anti-Semitic mob to be his wife especially when that man, Leo Frank, who is murdered in Georgia in 1915, is played with his usual intensity and vocal drama by Ben Platt. He goes on, quote, Yet in the riveting Broadway revival of the musical parade that opened on Thursday at the Bernard B. Jacobs Theater, it's Michaela Diamond as Lucille Frank you watch most closely and who breaks your heart. With no affection whatsoever and a voice directly wired to her emotions, she makes Lucille our way into a story we might rather turn away from, quote. I couldn't agree with this reviewer more. He's got it right on the head. I mean, she her performance is so wonderful. And I learned this week about her age, and I, I could not believe it. She brings so much maturity and talent to the role. And I agree also with him whenever he says, 
quote, the usual intensity and vocal drama by Ben Platt, quote. Like, that is the thing that kind of made me be like, okay, this isn't a five out of five. It's closer to a four out of five for me because it was a usual character for Ben Platt. It, it was much more dramatic, much more dark, but at Leo Frank's core of his personality, it was something that we've seen Ben Platt portray before. I don't mean that to say that it was a bad portrayal whatsoever. I think he played the role very well. But at the same time, it wasn't anything completely and totally new. Um, and the the review is mostly positive. I mean, I really didn't see, I read the whole thing. I did not see anything super negative. It's a tale as old as time. It's come to Broadway before. People know the history of the show and the staging and the way that they have put on their production. It's wonderful. Um, and it, it knows what it is. It is a historic show that ignites the audience, makes us freaking sad. It's a wonderful show at its core. Uh, it, it doesn't have a whole lot of lights, camera, action, nothing over the top. It is just enough. And it is a show that is going to stick with you and a story that you will never forget for as long as you live. And so I, I was just really happy whenever I read this review and that he gave Michaela Diamond all of the credit that she so richly deserves because dang, is she incredible. So good things for Parade. Congratulations on your opening night, the release of your cast album, and of course, a great review from the New York Times. Those don't come easy. So moving on, guys, to another opening night that we had this week, Bad Cinderella. Oh, I just cringe to even talk about it. And I, I feel like just first I have to tell you guys, it's a really tough week for Andrew Lloyd Webber for more reasons than one. He lost his son at the age of 43 to gastric cancer. And I'm really, oh man, I'm just feeling for Andrew Lloyd Webber at this time. It's so freaking heartbreaking. Um, so he passed away on March 25th and Andrew Lloyd Webber had been posting to Instagram uh, well, maybe not Instagram, but just posting online, keeping his fans in the loop about what's going on. We knew he didn't attend previews because his son was in the hospital. And uh, so we found out this week that his son has passed. Um, a really, really tragic, tragic situation, especially so young. But Andrew Lloyd Webber says the statement, quote, I am shattered to have announced that my beloved elder son, Nick, died a few hours ago in Basingstoke Hospital. His whole family is gathered together and we are all totally bereft, quote. Um, so a little bit about Nick Lloyd Webber. He was also a musician, somewhat followed in his father's footsteps. Um, he had worked on documentary series such as Control Z, Monarcha, and Grey's Anatomy. He has made his imprint on the entertainment space and he Oh, I just feel for Andrew Lloyd Webber. He's going to be so missed. Um, and it's it's just a really tough week. And I, I, I hesitate to go into all of the negativity that came out about Bad Cinderella for its opening night. Obviously, Andrew Lloyd Webber has been through enough, but we are a Broadway news podcast. So I have to convey the facts that Bad Cinderella got awful reviews for its opening night. I feel like I've maintained a very positive outlook on Bad Cinderella. I've adopted the fact that, hey, not everything's going to be perfect and life-changing. It's okay for things to be a little bit different and interesting and unique in their own right. 
But bad Cinderella altogether. I'll just read the review because uh, it stings. This review is also written by Jesse Green, and it is titled Bad Cinderella, the review. The title warned us. First of all, I'd just like to say, how would anybody think it was a good idea to call this version of Cinderella bad Cinderella? They made it all too easy for every critic to make fun of the title. It's just like you're handing this to us. You're handing us the name Bad Cinderella. Like, so now it is not going to be known as Bad Cinderella, but like, no, it's the bad version of Cinderella. Let's get into the review. Jesse Green says, quote, first, bring earplugs, not just because the songs in Bad Cinderella, the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical that opened on Thursday at the Imperial Theater, are so crushingly loud, the dialogue, too, would benefit from inaudibility. For that matter, bring eyeplugs. The sets and costumes are as loud as the songs. If there were such a thing as soul plugs, I'd recommend them as well. That's because Bad Cinderella is not the clever, high-spirited revamp you might have expected, casting contemporary fairy dust on the classic story of love and slippers. It has none of the grit of the grim tale, the sweetness of the Disney movie, or the grace, let alone the melodic delight, of the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. Instead, it's surprisingly vulgar, sexed up, and dumbed down, a parade of hustling women in bustiers and shirtless, peck-rippling hunks. Finally, a Cinderella for streetwalkers and gym rats. Quote, Oh, Lordy mercy, that is a bad review. I really didn't expect it to uh, go down in flames quite the way that it has. Uh, I had seen the videos on TikTok, guys. I've seen the bootlegs, but I just am like, oh, come on now, let's not go so far as to say that this is just complete and utter trash. You know, we got to give it a little bit of credit, but it sounds like uh, there's no credit worthy of giving. It sounds like it's really awful. It sounds like it is a bad Cinderella. So if you want to read the entire review for uh, Parade and for Bad Cinderella, they will be in the show notes we don't need to harp on it for too long, but just know, I mean, if you're going to go and see it, which low-key I still want to because I am so intrigued. I'm like, how? How could it be this bad? Andrew Lloyd Webber has had a chokehold on Broadway for over 40 years now at this point, and he's putting out this trash. Like, how could it be so bad? I believe that it is. I am no longer giving it the benefit of the doubt. But at the same time, if I had like, just a month to spend in New York where I could go and see everything, I would totally go and see this because I'm so curious. I've seen the set design and honestly, it looks really cool. Um, I like I've seen the mannequins and they're all in a white gauze type. It's, it's very intriguing. It's very weird for sure. Campy, some might say. Um, but I do. I'm just intrigued. I've heard some of the lines when she says something to the effects of, I am like the worst woman in the world and I've worn socks with sandals or something like that. And so it's just, it sounds so cheesy and like poor writing. And um, yeah, I've seen the costumes. They are crazy. I'm so intrigued though. Nevertheless, I still want to give Andrew Lloyd Webber my money. Anyways, like I said, these reviews are down in the show notes below. Go enjoy them. Give yourself a read. They're uh, really interesting. 
And lastly, I gotta let y'all know that we got the announcement officially that Smash is coming to Broadway. Whenever we talked about Smash in episodes 30 and 31, I kind of hinted to the effects that, okay, we've been seeing a lot from Catherine McPhee. We've heard about this workshop. These are not coincidences. It is coming to Broadway. And we finally got the official announcement. Guys, it'll be here in the 2024 to 2025 season. So we've got some time. It's not coming, you know, next week, but we are going to get it. And they also announced the people who are working on the project. So we've got Susan Stroman, who we know from the producers. She will be directing. I've seen her name on so many things. She's a good director, so that that's exciting. We've got Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman. They right now are on Some Like It Hot, but they also did Hairspray and Mary Poppins Returns, and they did a lot of the music. I think pretty much all of the music for Smash Seasons 1 and 2, and they wrote Let Me Be Your Star. So they've been really excited about this. They're the ones who are posting like the teasers about the workshops and things, so we knew that they were working on this project. Very exciting, and it makes me feel like it's in good hands with these two. We've got Bob Martin and Rick Ellis. Bob Martin is from The Prom and Rick Ellis is from Jersey Boys and they are writing the book. And we've got Joshua Bergesi who choreographed the TV series and he will be working on the stage adaptation. We've got a good tenured Broadway crew behind it. We don't know yet about roles. We know in the workshop, uh, Megan Hilty was there. So we can keep our fingers crossed that Miss Megan Hilty will also be in the show. That would be full circle awesome. I don't think Catherine McPhee is going to come back to Smash. She did say on TV that she would be down to do a revival whenever she was on Jennifer Hudson's uh, TV show, but I think she got far too much flack. I wouldn't ever step back to that role if I received that much negativity in my performance, but you know, maybe she will. Maybe she's, maybe she'll be behind the scenes at the very least doing producing or something like that. But we did get a small tidbit from Neil Marin talking about their vision for bringing this TV show flop to the stage. He says, quote, what we didn't want to do was just put the TV series on stage. We wanted our own spin on it. We are very conscious of our fan base and very conscious that there's a new audience that's never been exposed to Smash before. So our take is more comedic and more of a love letter to Broadway, quote. I think it might work in their advantage that there are some new people who haven't been exposed to Smash, because if you've listened to this episode, it was the freaking hugest flop and dumpster fire of a TV show. It started out really good and went majorly downhill. So these new people who are coming to Broadway, these young theater goers, they might be pretty interested and haven't watched season two, which could work to their advantage. So anyways, it's so exciting. We've been hearing all of the little secret conversations and small developments they've been making along the way. We don't have a Broadway stage yet. We don't have an exact date. We don't have a cast even. Hopefully that'll come out here soon and we'll keep you in the loop here at From the Mezzanine. All right, guys, that leads us into our story from the stage where we will be talking about Legally Blonde. One of these days y'all are gonna ask me to stop singing on here, but I haven't heard it yet, so I'm gonna keep doing it. Welcome to the story from the stage. Legally Blonde the Musical is what you want. With its catchy tunes and strong ensemble choruses, the powerhouse of this musical is the woman in pink and the sorority girls that stand behind her. 
What's so much better is the smooth transition it took from blockbuster flick to Broadway staple. But when, how, and why did this book turned cult classic movie turn into a musical? As we've recounted many times since FTM's beginnings, where there is a cult classic, there must be a musical spinoff. With the movement of female empowerment and the uncanny likability factor of Elle Woods, the songs must have written themselves. It'd be nice to think that they did, but as always, things don't come as easily or quickly in the theater, and they rarely pay off. Did Legally Blonde the musical match the success of its film inspiration? Let's draw the curtain. To understand the beginnings of the musical, we have to take a few steps back to learn about its original form as a novel. Legally Blonde was written by author Amanda Brown, who based her novel off her own life as a blondie attending law school. As she was breaking gender norms and stereotypes, pursuing her degree from acclaimed university Stanford, she collected notes, letters, and documented her humorous experiences as someone who didn't exactly fit the mold of an uptight, bookwormish law student. Read an interview with Amanda and you can tell straight away, this is the woman who imagined Elle Woods. She says she got into Stanford for her top-tier test scores, but once she saw the mall at Stanford, her fate was sealed. It was a love and they fell hard and fast. But once things got serious and classes began, she suddenly realized this might not be for her. She remarked she would often laugh at the things that other students were incredibly serious about. In her own words, she calls the law students the most loathsome dose of antisocial disorder. From there on out, she pretty much acted as a fly on the wall, sending mocking letters to her friends back home of what she was observing to find any semblance of entertainment. Amanda spent two years in law school and nearly completed her degree. But on the last day, she went into the counselor's office and officially quit. Amanda doesn't regret leaving her degree unfinished, though, because she found her true calling, writing, and already had a 300-page manuscript called Legally Blonde. She compiled her trove of blonde tales and transformed it into the story of Elle Woods, the fashion-forward Delta Nu sorority president who chases her politically inclined boyfriend, Warner, to law school and finds a passion and independence of her own along the way. In 2001, Amanda sent her manuscript to publishers and studios. You could say it stood out in true Elwood's fashion as it was all written on pink paper and with her fluffy pink pen. What happens next must have been sheer luck because amongst the film studios, a bidding war took place and MGM won the rights. While in development, the original idea for the film did not exemplify the upbeat women-empowering movement that it so greatly projects. Rather, pretty much the entire opposite. It was raunchy and crass and meant to be more similar to the popular film at the time, American Pie. They were really leaning into the uh, sorority girl aspect, if you catch my drift. They even casted Jennifer Coolidge, who, bless, we love her now, but she was the hot mom from American Pie, and this was going to round out their raunchy vision. However, as development persisted, the vision evolved, thank God, into a more wholesome yet hilarious female-led film. 
A sprightly, young, stunning Reese Witherspoon was hired for her brains behind her beauty that she so effervescently brings to Elle Woods. Other considerations for the title role of Elle Woods were Charlize Theron, Christina Applegate, Gwyneth Paltrow, Katherine Heigl, and even Britney Spears' name was thrown into the circle by producer Mark Platt. Must I remind you, Mark Platt of the Ben and Henry Platt variety? Yes, he was a huge lead producer on this film. Back to Blonde, though, the film was released in theaters July 13, 2001, and was classified as a sleeper hit, which means a movie that didn't experience immediate craze but grew to become a pop culture classic. It grossed $20 million in its opening week and $96 million during its release in theaters, and its impact today continues to grow. Five years after its release, we got the very first hushed whisperings of a Broadway run, and in 2006, the New York Times released an article, Guns Ablazin', already announcing our director, the off-Broadway run, the off-Broadway tryout in San Francisco, and the anticipated opening date of April 27, 2007 at Broadway's Palace Theater. In this bursting announcement, we learned Jerry Mitchell would be the director, and at this time, Jerry hadn't yet directed a Broadway show, but was better known as a choreographer, which he also covered for the show. This man of many hats choreographed shows like Grease, The Rocky Horror Show, Hairspray, Gypsy, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, and many, many more. But directing for Broadway would be a new avenue for him. The dream team was assembled as follows. Heather Hatch wrote the book in her Broadway debut, and I haven't seen that she's been on Broadway again since. Lyricists Nell Benjamin and Lawrence O'Keefe are also fresh faces for Broadway at this time. Nell went on to be the songwriter for Mean Girls, and Lawrence wrote the off-Broadway music for the original Heathers. The dream team did what every good movie-based Broadway show ought to do. Follow the same story, but bring a new light, fresh ideas, and vibrance to the show to keep the audience from thinking, I could have stayed home and watched this on TV. They aim to pay accurate tribute to the characters and story, but bring an added depth that is necessary to fill the two and a half hours of live theatrical storytelling. Let's learn about our leading lady, Laura Bell Bundy. Laura is a Kentucky girl and always seemed to be in showbiz in some capacity while growing up. At age nine, she was in the Radio City Christmas Spectacular and made her Broadway debut in 2002 in Hairspray, originating the role of Amber when she was just 21. She worked in Wicked for a while thereafter as Kristen Chenoweth's standby until 2007 when Elle Woods came her way. I feel like the move from Glinda to Elle is probably one of the most natural transitions that somebody could make. <laughs> Laura was provided the material for Legally Blonde and had the preconceived notions that this would be a cheesy, silly, lighthearted, and likely surface-level show and character. But as she dug into the pages, she was enthralled by its wit and sharpness. In her own words, Laura describes her character, quote, Elle is very positive and optimistic and bubbly. And I have a little of that natural bubbliness in my personality, and I'm blonde. So it seems like a perfect fit in a way, quote, she goes on to explain, though there are notable similarities, there are also some key differences. Quote, I'm more dry and sarcastic and a little more jaded. And though I like being up on fashion, I don't read Vogue or follow it as much as Elle. 
I actually spend way more time shopping in Whole Foods than I do at Bergdorf Goodman, quote. Safe to say, Laura Bell Bundy is not like other girls. Aside from our lady in pink, I'd also like to touch on her booksmart counterpart, no, not Warner, Emmett, played by the beloved Christian Borel. Christian was a well-acquainted Broadway actor at this time, coming off the mega-success of Spamalot. He'd also previously been seen on Broadway in Jesus Christ Superstar, Amour, Footloose, and Thoroughly Modern Millie. This was pre-Smash Day, so he wasn't yet quite the name that he is today. Jerry Mitchell, our director-slash-choreographer for Legally Blonde, approached Christian Borel in the stairwell at the Schubert Theater following a performance of Spamalot. He asked if he would attend a workshop for Legally Blonde, and Christian was all in from the get-go, but he was sure that Jerry wanted him to play the weird, awkward law student guy. Do you remember him from the movie? But Jerry says that he fell in love with Christian Borrell's performance and offered him the role of Emmett right there on the spot. Christian couldn't believe it. Legally Blonde's out-of-town tryout opened at the Golden Gate Theater in San Francisco on January 23, 2007, with plans to run for a full month before moving to Broadway. Richard Blake, a critic with Talkin' Broadway, attended the tryout's opening night. He praised Christian Borrell's honest and smooth portrayal of Emmett and appreciated the clear character development Laura Bell Bundy accomplishes with Elle. He draws a stark comparison of Laura to Christian Chenoweth in body language and vocals. He completes his theatrical review saying, quote, There is no doubt in my mind that with proper trimming and a little cutting, this musical will be a hit with summer Broadway audiences. It's a fun, entertaining musical that people will be seeking in these troubled times, quote. The Broadway tryout closed, as expected, on February 25th, 2007, after one month with precisely two months before Broadway. Now, that's not a lot of time, but in that short period, they were able to make a few tweaks. The main difference being a song switch out. In San Francisco, there was a song called Love and War in place of the sorority Greek chorus number, Think Positive. I found a video online of the original song, and Think Positive is without a doubt more fitting for the genre and for the show. Love and War takes a darker side for stealing Warner back from his new drab girlfriend Vivian, but the song also features just as energetic dance breaks and the sorority humor that makes this show so hilarious. The music of Love and War is dark, and it doesn't fit the overall vibes of Legally Blonde nearly as well as the springy, catchy Think Positive. Legally Blonde descended onto Broadway at the Palace Theater with the same cast it had in its tryout. Previews began April 3rd, with an opening on April 29th. The stars came out for this Hollywood flick turned Broadway smash in the likes of Corbin Blue, Jane Krakowski, Kathy Lee Gifford, and Joan Rivers. But the one who stole the show at the red carpet, without a doubt, was Bruiser Ellis Chihuahua and Rufus Paulette's bulldog. Oh my god, the bulldog was so cute. It had a rhinestone tutu on, and it was by far the best dressed on that red carpet. I will have to post the pictures on my social media stories so y'all can see it as well. That'll be in the links below. As we know, the critics come out too on opening night, which is always a cause for anxiety. Will they like the kitschy bubblegum pop musical or call it too pink with not enough power? The New York Times critic Ben Brantley released his review. 
He called it candy worship in the temple of the prom queen and used another candy metaphor in nearly every sentence. You'll see, you'll, you'll hear it in just a minute. But overall in his review, there was pretty much no disdain for the show. He reviewed, quote, Flossing between songs is recommended for anyone who attends Legally Blonde, the nonstop sugar rush of a show that opened last night at the Palace Theater. He goes on, quote, This high energy, empty calories, and expensive looking hymn to the glories of girlishness, based on the 2001 film of the same title, approximates the experience of eating a jumbo box of gummy bears in one sitting. This may be common fare for the show's apparent target audience, female tweens and teenagers who still believe in Barbie, but unless you're used to such a diet, you wind up feeling jittery, glazed, and determined to swear off sweets for at least a month, quote. I doubt Ben was exactly their target demographic, but he seemed to go on to be blown away by Jerry Mitchell's choreography. He compliments the showability of making the transition from MGM to Broadway look easy, something that other shows at this point had not done very well. The review explains that this show is for the girls who love Wicked but hated that Fiera wound up with the green, brainy Elphaba rather than the popular pink Glinda. He does criticize Laura Bell Bundy's performance in that she couldn't perfectly replicate Reese Witherspoon's magneticism or exploding charm. But who could after we already adore Reese's L so dearly? Overall, a good review. And again, like our previous episode about Mean Girls, this show is not aiming to significantly change anybody's life. But it does offer a super fun night out and an easily digestible story with surprising wit, humor, and characters that you wish were your best friends. Legally Blonde was nominated for seven Tony Awards, Best Book, Score, Choreography, Costume Design, Christian Borle for Actor in a Featured Role, Orpha for Actress in a Featured Role, and Laura Bell Bundy for Lead Actress. The lineup for this 2007 Tony Awards show was crazy and blew my mind because it is hard for me to believe that Legally Blonde and Spring Awakening were during the same year. I don't know why that is so crazy, but they just seem like such different eras on Broadway. And I'm sure that it was tough because they really were going after the same sort of demographic, the younger Broadway theater goers. But the Spring Awakening crowd was die-hard obsessed, so I bet this made it pretty hard for Legally Blonde to break through the screaming fans over there at Spring Awakening. But it must have been a fun time for Broadway, though. And as I'm sure you've probably assumed, Spring Awakening completely swept the musical categories for the most part, leaving Legally Blonde empty-handed with zero Tony wins. After Broadway's summer rush, Legally Blonde's profits were dipping dangerously down, like closing next month if they didn't do something big, kind of down. They needed to get their show in the faces of crowds, or more like mobs, that were fiending at the doors of Spring Awakening. Their solution? Legally Blonde entered a partnership with MTV. What an incredibly wise decision, because guess what network those young Spring Awakening fans probably watch daily? MTV. Gotta love good theater marketing. Three performances were recorded, edited together, and broadcasted on MTV's network on October 13th and 14th, 2007. The proof is in the pudding, y'all. In the weeks before MTV's recording, Legally Blonde was sitting around half a million in weekly grosses. In the week right before, and a couple of weeks thereafter, 
the profits jumped to over 800,000. It didn't last forever though, because after the MTV hype died back down, a month after its air date, profits dipped drastically, way down to 300,000 a week. But right around the corner is the best week on Broadway, Christmas, and profits skyrocketed to over a million. Also at this time, contracts came out and Laura Bell Bundy notified the team that she would sign for another six months, but depart in July. The team struggled to find any big names remotely capable of filling Laura's best freaking shoes. <laughs> Amanda Lippitz, the musical's producer, explains, quote, MTV had aired the musical in October 2007. At the same time, we were having trouble casting the next L, getting a name to play the part. Celebrities would come, they'd sit and watch the show, and they'd be like, oh my god, it's a huge part, lots of dancing, huge belty songs, you're in every scene, it is not for the faint of heart, quote. So they learned finding their Elle Woods replacement wasn't going to be easy. They'd planned on holding callbacks across the country, but Amanda had a stroke of genius when she came up with the idea, quote, the way to capitalize on a Broadway veteran or Joe Schmo coming in was to do a reality show that builds them up and makes them a star. That was the idea. The Grease thing, NBC's Grease, you're the one that I want, had happened. But this was more like MTV, more they all lived together. And this would show how hard it was to be on Broadway. Quote, do y'all remember the Grease version, the you're the one that I want? Oh my gosh, I loved that show. It took us behind the scenes and they cast every single character in Grease. So they were aiming to do something similar, but for their version of the behind-the-scenes Broadway reality show, Amanda sat down with Laura Bell Bundy and planned out the challenges the auditioning hopefuls would be put up against. Laura came up with all of it. The running on the treadmills while singing, the quick change challenge, group dance-offs, and of course, being able to hold the 16 bars at the end of So Much Better. A very difficult feat that Elle Woods needs to make look Easy breezy. Laura Bell Bundy's agents advised her to maintain her distance from the show, since at this time, reality TV was really looked down upon. But for her replacement, Laura said that these are the key traits they needed to find. Quote, endurance, cardiovascular strength, and vocal health. I did say that the vulnerability was important. Elle Woods was a real person, not just a dumb blonde. So being able to understand that she's just smart about other things that other people aren't smart about. And she's also very positive, quote. The eight-episode MTV series Legally Blonde the Musical, The Search for Elle Woods, debuted on June 2nd, 2008. It began with 15 contestants all vying for the starring role. But in the end, Bailey Hanks, a 20-year-old homegrown South Carolina girl, won the title. Bailey took to the Palace Theater stage on July 23rd, 2008, after Laura Bell Bundy's departure, and the entire show had come out on MTV. For a few weeks after the exciting change in lead roles, Legally Blonde's profits rose steadily. But then, once again, once the newness wore down, plummeted to an all-time low. And as a result, Legally Blonde closed on Broadway on October 19, 2008, after an 18-month run and just under 600 performances. Bailey Hanks stayed with the cast until its closing. A considerable factor in the decision to close, when they did, was because of the recession that the country was heading into in 2008. 
And rather than remaining on Broadway through the holiday spike, they decided to just cut their losses. And they certainly did experience losses. Surprisingly, despite their tenure on Broadway and credible number of performances, Legally Blonde closed its doors before recouping its investments. The budget for Legally Blonde was estimated to be between 9 and 10 million, which had not yet been profited. Thus, the Broadway production of Legally Blonde was deemed a commercial flop. Of course, since this time, there have been multiple national tours. Matter of fact, there is one circling America right now. In 2009, Legally Blonde moved across the pond to the West End, where it accomplished great things, winning three Olivier Awards and running for 934 performances, quite a bit longer than in the U.S. This past year, there was also a new London revival directed by Lucy Moss, the creator of Six, which brought a brand new, modern, and diverse breath of fresh air to Legally Blonde. I was living for this production. I loved every video and every photo that I saw. That cast looked so good. Since making her lasting impression on Broadway as the lovable Elle Woods, Laura Bell Bundy took a long break from the spotlight. However, she recently announced that after a 15-year hiatus, she will be returning to the Broadway stage this summer in the play The Cottage. To give y'all a little bit of a description about what The Cottage is about, quote, The farcical rom-com takes aim at the comedies of Neil Simon, Oscar Wilde, and other British playwrights. Set in the English countryside in 1923, it follows Sylvia Van Kipnis as she decides to expose her love affair to her husband and her lover's wife. What follows is a twisty unraveling of secrets between two couples, quote. I cannot wait to hear more about this project, and I'm so curious on why this is what has brought her back to Broadway, the place that has missed her for so long. And in addition to Laura Bell Bundy, they've announced some of the cast that also piques my interest. We've got Alex Moffat from SNL and Lily Cooper from Spring Awakening and POTUS. So I'll keep you updated here on FTM about everything that goes down with the cottage. But Laura Bell Bundy, we are happy to have you back on Broadway, girl. And with that exciting news of looking forward to the future, that concludes our story from the stage all about Legally Blonde. I was so bitchy. But this music gets stuck in our heads at the most inopportune times, and it has graced many junior high and high school stages. Please tell me y'all have all been a victim to the illegally blonde videos I see circulating. They are rough. They are real bad, but so, so incredible. And if this show is coming to your town soon, let me know what you think. I still haven't even seen it live, but I've certainly watched both MTV specials. I loved watching it when it came out. And when I was preparing for this story from this stage, I re-watched the MTV special and was just reminded of how fun, how exciting, and how positive this show is. So thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of From the Mezzanine. Before you go, I have a video out that is sort of a Legally Blonde admissions essay parody, but with my own special twist. So please go and check it out. It is on all of my social channels down below. And you can find me by simply typing in From the Mezzanine. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'm serious, y'all. Go watch that video. We spent quite a bit of time on it. And um, let's just say... Hopefully I have plans for June 11th after this comes out. 
Please, please, please. Okay, guys, if you enjoyed this episode, I hope you did. It was our first real story from the stage in quite a while. Please leave me a five-star review. It does such incredible things. And, and, and share this episode with your friends. Tell all of your musical theater-loving friends about From the Mezzanine. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I will see you all next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.